Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. A few years ago, Criterion launched a 10-year strategic plan, which solidified our commitment to direct the power of the financial system to be a positive force against systemic injustice. You're joining us for part two of a five-part series on the core pillars of our 2020 to 2030 strategic plan. Each episode will give you an inside look into how those pillars came into focus for our organization, why it's so important for us to do this work now and over the long term, key partners who are working with us, and the highlights of our impact to date. This week, we dive into unleashing the power of policy. This is the work we do with government partners to support them in utilizing their existing social policies to raise the bar for innovative finance initiatives. First, we'll talk about the history of the work in this space and how we work to expand the imagination of governments to see that they can use their power of influence and improve gender and other social outcomes in both public and private finance. Then we'll discuss a common misperception that a lot of innovative finance programs have taken on that women-led businesses need to be de-risk. Governments have put quite a bit of money into guarantees for banks and others that will de-risk their investments in women-led businesses. Finally, we'll talk about the need for a translation function within donor agencies in particular to facilitate coordination between innovative finance and the departments working on gender and other social policies. Enjoy. One of the pillars of the strategic plan that we wrote in 2019 is what we call the power of policy. This is Criterion's got no place historically influencing government policy. We're not that kind of an advocacy organization. But our look at the power of policy is to ensure that government agencies are using their power to align their innovative finance programs with the boldest ambitions of their social and gender policies. Essentially, to use their power to increase, to contribute to, to push forward what innovative finance, what gender lens investing, what institutions can do to increase gender equality and just social justice using finance. So Criterion historically has not been an organization that worked in governments, I would say, in the first 10 years or so. We were not engaging with governments. We were working in the private sector. We were working with companies and we were working in the nonprofit sector, largely in the U.S. And we had an invitation. So this is sort of the backstory of this strategy. We had an invitation from USAID to work in Asia for about a year looking at what the field of gender lens investing could look like in Asia. 
And so all of a sudden we'd gone from, I mean, honestly, innovative finance, impact investing, gender lens investing. These were not created by government agencies. These were created by private sector actors trying to use finance for good, uh, you know, accelerate change. They weren't the type, actually, that was going to turn to government and say, what can government do about this? So early days, governments were actually notably absent from these conversations of impact investing. Obviously, there had been a long history of development finance and other forms of finance, but the world that we lived in and in, in the gender lens investing, the world that we created, there weren't government actors. And so all of a sudden, we found ourselves traveling with USAID, and it ended up being a bit of a parade. Other governments sent folks on the same journey with us, and we started to make some connections. What could governments do to advance what we were trying to move forward in gender lens investing? This was the same time that more and more connections were getting made between impact investing, innovative finance, new approaches to using finance to create social change and donor agencies. USAID was creating the lab, ubiquitous term for a place where innovative finance was happening, overlaps with the private sector was happening inside of USAID. The Australians were creating a similar organization. The Canadians were looking at innovative finance. Actually, a couple of years later, the Obama administration was also really took a focus on how do we look at innovative finance. So that intersection between creating innovation and governments was starting to come into place. And so we noticed a disjuncture, right? Here were governments at the time, the Obama administration, Canadian government, where there were deep commitments to gender equality. And yet what we saw in the innovative finance programmings that were created, that were moving forward, was less of a focus on gender, was less ambition, sometimes an outright avoidance. Let's figure out how we can do innovation, but let's stay away from those compliance things, like those people who ask us to look at things like gender. Can we just avoid them? Because we're doing cool, innovative, smart things. We ended up wandering into the middle of all of this. And we spent about a year doing a broad survey with the amazing woman, Susan Markham, on what was the intersection? What were the policies of governments? And what was the overlap of those government policies, their gender justice or social justice ambitions, policies, statements? What was the overlap between that and their implementation of their innovative finance programming? Because more capital is moving, and governments are facilitating that. In the time since we first started exploring this, it has continued to be a bigger and bigger and bigger thing for governments to engage in the private sector. So as more and more money is moving, how do we make sure that there's an alignment? And again, like so much of our other work, there's a disjuncture here, right? The people who are brought in to work on innovative finance into governments to sort of have that infusion of innovation don't come from gender theory. They're not the gender activists. They're people who are from finance. And so we were seeing across the board that there needed to be more of an intersection between how governments implement their innovative finance and their commitments to social justice policies. 
Right now, one of the biggest focuses of our work is saying, what does it look like for governments to ask for more? Building this broad range of standards that we're putting together that invite governments to know that they can ask for more. Because one of the dilemmas within this is governments are only able to implement what they can do with others, right? Governments don't actually have that much capacity to implement. They need to move tax dollars to things that where implementation will happen. The implementation challenge is always, can they ask people to do things? Can they get anybody to do that? And so the sort of resistance of, ooh, we would love innovative finance to address those issues, but finance won't do that work. They won't take our money. We won't be able to place capital. We won't be able to move capital unless we accommodate their interests. So we wandered into this sort of fascinating intersection. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of our work of looking at the dynamic between how do we get people to ask for more? How do we get governments to ask for more? How do we hold the line and say, there is more that we can do in innovative finance to address deep structural inequities? How do you look at the capacity of governments to actually implement that? And then how do we hold a line to what does that look like with their policies? So we partner with a ton of donor agencies, multilaterals. In general, we've focused less on national and or subnational governments. We've played it out from time to time to say, what would this look like in a U.S. state or in an Australian province? So we have looked at it at those levels, but most of our work has actually focused at the level of a donor agency because it was where we found traction. In the end, what we're working to do is expand the imagination of governments to see that they can use their power to influence and improve the outcomes in both public and private finance. We want to demonstrate within this pillar that more is possible and, where possible, provide the guidance for how to achieve it. And through these sustained relationships with different government agencies, we can track what are the shifting political economies and understand what's necessary to foster their will to act. What ensures that governments are actually taking the action, moving forward the implementation that will get us to better innovative finance. This strategy runs against the grain of a lot of where there is momentum. Many people in working in finance, in innovative finance, are talking about government capital being used to de-risk investments, and that that's the primary focus, right? That sort of how do government capital used to de-risk investments and particularly focused on women-led businesses in developing countries. That's one sort of flow of money that we see constantly. Actually, sure that investing in a women-owned business is actually risky. It's not. In some ways, it's bias that means that they're perceived as such. So a question here is, should governments be financing that bias? Should governments be supporting people to say, eek, women entrepreneurs, risky, ooh, or should we actually ask that they push back and say, no, that actually isn't risky you're asking us to pay for bias. 
So how do we build the tools that support that, the research that underpins this so governments feel like they can actually push back and name that? To move this forward, we focus on creating three core results within government actors. Imagination. Can they imagine what is possible for them to do to implement their policies? Understanding what supports their ability to ask for more, what supports their ability to align their innovative finance implementation strategies with their policies. And finally, and probably most importantly here, a will to act. What motivates bureaucrats working day to day, doing actually pretty damn hard jobs? What gives them the sense of agency that they can ask for more? have the kind of impact that they imagine. I remember a couple years ago, I was in a workshop that we were running for the Canadian government. And I asked them a question and said, how would you invest if you believed your overseas development assistance, your ODA, your, the money that governments give out to support development globally? How would you invest if you believed that your ODA was working? And what I saw in that room is what personally motivates me around this pillar, which is I saw a set of people taking in the fact that they didn't have as much hope that they couldn't actually imagine that all of this worked. And so within that, remembering that part of what is needed for all humans who are trying to create complex systems change is to believe in the end that it's possible. That's true whatever we do, and it is true in innovative finance. Blended finance, broadly speaking, is about pulling together different types of capital to meet the needs of all of the different stakeholders. But most often, it's about bringing in capital from one source that's willing to de-risk for another. So for example, I am a big multinational and I am wanting to build a huge hydroelectric dam somewhere in the middle of X country. And I think doing that is going to be too risky. And so governments put capital into this infrastructure project to de-risk it for me, to be able to move private capital because they have removed a risk that otherwise the private sector wouldn't tolerate, or they would tolerate by making the overall financing of the project prohibitively expensive. So all of these factors come together to say, somebody's got a perception of risk, governments or philanthropy or whoever it might be, put money in to de-risk that. The thing I find maddening is that we seem to never go back and figure out whether or not the perception of risk, the calculation of risk, was accurate. Take women entrepreneurs for a second. This for me is in some ways the most simple. Many, many development finance institutions, multilateral banks have put money into banks around the world to incent them to invest in women entrepreneurs, to de-risk investing in women entrepreneurs. We have fairly definitively, if there is something that has happened in the world, we have proven that women entrepreneurs are not actually riskier. They're not even always costlier. 
but they are not riskier investments. Sure, if you have the wrong kind of alignment of capital, but if you are putting the right kind of money that that business needs, their performance is not subpar. So why do we continue to pay to de-risk them? There's really only one answer. We're paying for bias. We're not paying for a calculation or some fancy de-risking in a capital stack. We are paying for that group to continue to operate with bias, to analyze their investments with bias, to run financial calculations that have bias built into them, and we're giving them an incentive to do that. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this once, right? We don't always know what's risky, what's not. Is it bias or is it actually systemic underperformance? Fool me once, don't fool me twice. Why don't we go back and check to see if the original calculations where we were covering risk was actually accurate? Why don't we find the patterns to say, should we be de-risking or should we call it out and say, we are no longer willing to pay for bias? I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years talking with people, leaders, bureaucrats who work inside of complex donor agencies, organizations inside of governments that are investing in development globally. And so I don't want to call out any individual because it doesn't feel right, but I want to tell a story. Imagine that you are a gender specialist working in a donor agency. It is not an enviable job. You are asked to review every piece of funding that goes out the door and put your gender stamp on it, yes, no, or maybe. You're asked to stretch your learning and your knowledge way past whatever area of comfort you had to say, today we need you to review what's happening in agriculture. Tomorrow we need you to review what's happening in this social programming tied to water supply. And so they are generalists. So you're a, you're a gender specialist inside of a donor agency and you are asked to be a generalist and you try. You try to look at each application, each thing that you're asked to review. Because in general, gender specialists within donor agencies have a limited amount of their own funding. There's always a little bit of gender programming, so to speak, but most of what you're doing is reviewing the rest of the funding to make sure that it adheres to the policies tied to gender within the department or the agency. So I'm reviewing this day to day, and then I'm asked to review something about finance. And I just want to name from the people that I have talked to, this feels like a bridge too far for them. They've stretched to agriculture. They've stretched to water systems. They've looked across countries, across continents. And now you want them to ask about finance. And here's the core of the problem. It's not just that they couldn't get smart about finance, but they don't know what to look for. 
right? If you're doing water programming, you know what good water programming looks like. You went to school in international development. You learned about how programming should happen. You've learned the debates about good development and bad development. You've learned how to do a gender analysis in that context and look at the power dynamics in the programming and make sure that, you know, you are not simply reinforcing colonial patterns, blah, blah. You've looked at all of that. But when the application funding instead is from an investment fund, you don't know how to look at it. Are they doing a good job? Is this investment fund addressing social inequities? How do I know? So often what happens is they ask for the thing they know to ask for, ensure that resources are going to women. And that is a classic, it is important in any gender framework to say, are resources moving to people who didn't have them? Because it's a core way that power shifts. So what that became was, are you funding women entrepreneurs? I get why this happened, right? You're looking at a application, you're trying to figure out, you've not been trained in how to look at and assess finance, but you're trying to figure out, is this going to advance gender? And since it's about money, the thing you're going to look for is our resources transferring. The gender specialists that I've met are brilliant, but they don't have the experience. They haven't had the practice translating what they know about gender to systems of finance. And so at some fundamental level, what we need to have the patients to build this translation function inside of government agencies where the people working on innovative finance have the patience, the willingness, the openness to talk to, to engage gender specialists so that together they can figure out how to assess things well. But too often that translation function gets broken down because the, let's just name the translation function's not there and the interchange breaks down because the gender specialists looking at this proposal and saying, no, 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 make sure money's moving to women. And the innovative finance person is saying, wow, you didn't even know how hard it was to get this through the door. And now you're saying, no, 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 and asking me to do something that I can't. So how do we bridge that? How do we build better dialogues between innovative finance folks, gender specialists, so that we can draw on both sets of knowledge and value both sets of knowledge. Because in the end, being in a government is, in my mind, maybe it's because I chose not to do it, seems to be a relatively thankless task. And we could poo-poo that and say, so people are not innovative and creative and blah, 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 they're cogs in a machine. But I have met so many people who are more than cogs in machines. They are brave people pushing from inside of governments trying to create change. And I, for one, have endless patience to help them figure out how to do that. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.